there, everybody, and thank you for checking back in with the Straight A Nursing Podcast. It's Nurse Mo, and I'm so excited you're joining me here today. Today's topic is anticoagulants, but before we get into that, I just wanted to share with you, sometimes you guys send me the nicest notes, and they truly do make my day. So here's one from Carly, and she writes, hey, Nurse Mo. I just wanted to say thank you so much for all you contribute to the nursing community. I'm getting my RN at such and such school and read your book the summer before school started and it greatly decreased my anxiety. Now that I'm in school, myself and my classmates use your notes and your guidance to help us get through. Your thoughtfulness and sharing your insights, work, and tips are extremely appreciated. My boyfriend's sister just got accepted into nursing school and is so nervous, so of course I brought her straight to your website and told her how much you helped me get organized, figure out what was important, understand what was going to happen, and manage my anxiety about it all. Thank you, thank you, thank you, you rock. So to Carly, I just want to say, girl, you are the one that rocks. Thank you so much for the nice note, and thank you for paying it forward by helping out your boyfriend's sister. So thank you very much to everyone who sends a note. It really does make my day, and sometimes I don't get a chance to get back to you right away, but it does make me smile, so thank you. All right, so blood thinners, aka anticoagulants, if you want to be fancy. This is something that you guys are going to come across all the time in your clinical rotations and when you're out there practicing as a nurse, especially if you are in an inpatient setting. And basically, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because there are so many, especially these new generation anticoagulants out there, and it can get a little bit confusing and over. Overwhelming. So first, why do we need to anticoagulate? Basically, we are preventing blood clots, obviously. So when a blood clot happens, blood clots can happen anywhere in the body. When we get really excited about them is when they happen in the lungs, which is a pulmonary embolism. When they happen in the arteries of the heart, then we are having a myocardial infarction. And when it happens in the brain, when we have an ischemic stroke. Now, of course, blood clots can happen anywhere. They can happen in the gut. They can happen in the limbs. Uh, DVTs can happen in the arms, not just in the legs. So they really can occur all over. And when they do happen, we don't like them. So to prevent blood clots, we basically kind of go at it from a two-pronged approach. We have the anticoagulants. The one you might hear the most is like heparin would be a very common one or Lobinox or Coumadin is one that you may have heard of. And then we also use antiplatelet drugs such as Plavix. So we don't always use both of those but you might see them used in combination in some of your patients. And, you know, the term blood thinners, I, somebody criticized the, my use of that word and said that I really should be saying anticoagulants. And that's true. They're right. I really should 
be using the proper terms, but sometimes I just am folksy and say things like blood thinners because that's how my patients talk and I'm used to kind of keeping things on their level if that's where they are and it makes sense to them. So they don't actually thin the blood, first of all. We're essentially just through various mechanisms, depending on which anticoagulant you're using, we inhibit that blood clotting pathway. And so when someone says they're on a blood thinner, they're basically just saying that they're on a medication that will prevent the blood from clotting as easily as it normally would. Now, if a clot has already developed, we use a different drug to break up the clot. We use something like TPA or what you might hear referred to as a clot busting drug. But for now, today, we're just talking about the preventative side, the anticoagulant. So let's get into probably some of the most common ones you'll, you've heard about. We'll start with warfarin slash Coumadin and then go into heparin and Lovenox because these are the most common and the ones you'll see more frequently in the clinical setting and possibly on your exams. So Fun fact about warfarin slash brand name Coumadin is that it is actually rat poison. So um, it doesn't actually poison rats, but it is used in a lot of rat poisons because the drug will cause the rats to basically just bleed to death. So don't tell your patients that because then they won't want to take their Coumadin. Um, but it's just a little fun fact about it. So when your patient is on Coumadin, you might have seen some commercials on TV where the actors are kind of bashing Coumadin as a drug. And the reason they're bashing it in the commercial is because it does require frequent monitoring where the patient has to go to the lab and get their blood tested. And then they also have to kind of watch their diet a little bit. So when we talk about the patient having to go to the lab, what they're looking at is something called the INR. And a normal INR is 1.0. But in someone who we are trying to keep from clotting, we want their INR to be a little higher. So a goal INR for most patients on Coumadin is 2.0 to 3.0. And you might hear someone say the term, their INR is therapeutic. It means that it's higher than a normal INR, but it's actually where we want it to be. It's therapeutically elevated. So um, Coumadin, Warfarin, that INR level in a lot of patients is tracked weekly. So they do have to go to the lab pretty frequently. Sometimes it's every two weeks, maybe after they've been on it a while and they've really got their levels dialed in, they could space that out. But the big takeaway with Coumadin and Warfarin is that, well, same drug, Coumadin and Warfarin brand name, generic name, is that they will be getting their blood tested a lot. And this can be a little bit of a lifestyle hindrance for some people. The other thing that can make it a little bit of a lifestyle hindrance is that they have to be careful with their vitamin K consumption. So basically, Coumadin is a drug that inhibits the synthesis of clotting factors, and mainly it targets the ones related to vitamin K. So we won't go into all of that in super detail 
just know that vitamin K is the key and this is what you're going to need to know for your exams. So the dietary restrictions, I don't want to say they're restrictions because a lot of people will say, oh, I can't have any leafy greens ever because I'm on Coumadin and I can't have spinach salad ever again. Actually, you can. The trick with being on Coumadin and wanting to have greens that are high in vitamin K or any other food that's high in vitamin K is that you have to have a consistent intake. So your patient, if they say, I can't eat spinach, I'd love to be able to have salads, but I'm on the Coumadin, so I can't. A little bit of education there where they could work with their physician and determine Let's have spinach salad, but let's have it every day. So that's the issue with it. It has to be consistent and the same every day. So when you see those commercials, they talk about this. So it's just kind of funny. I always laugh and think, well, no, that's not actually true. But anyway, Coumadin, the two things you want to know, INR is 2.0 to 3.0. That makes it therapeutic. And to get that INR, they need to go to the lab frequently and get their blood drawn. And the other thing is consistent levels of vitamin K. And you will find vitamin K in high amounts in leafy greens, especially those dark leafy greens. So Coumadin is a PO medication that your patient will be taking at home. And let's just ask a quick question. If you were going to reverse it, like maybe your patient took way too much Coumadin, how would you reverse it? Of course, you would give vitamin K and probably also maybe some clotting factors, but there you go. So that's Coumadin slash Warfarin in a nutshell. So another one that you will see very commonly is heparin. So heparin is used in the clinical setting in a couple of different ways. You will see it as a subcutaneous injection given to your patients. A lot of times it's Q8 hours. So heparin given sub-Q as an injection or as an IV medication as a continuous, continuous infusion. So you'll see heparin given to people for things like Maybe they've come in with a myocardial infarction or a pulmonary embolism or a DVT. Then they get on this heparin drip, heparin infusion. We do this all the time in the ICU. Um, if your patient has an actual big old clot somewhere, I've seen interventional radiologists put a catheter right into the site where that clot is and infuse a low-dose heparin right there along with TPA. Okay, so it doesn't work. To, heparin's not going to work to break up the clot. It's going to prevent other clots, but you would want your patient to be on heparin to prevent more clots because obviously if they're getting blood clots, they're all clotty, as I like to say. You would see that heparin along with some TPA, which is the clot-busting drug, again, infused directly into the site. So for the most part, you're going to be giving your heparin as a sub-Q injection. Otherwise, they are going to be on a heparin drip or a heparin infusion. And this patient, again, is going to probably be in the intensive care unit, at least in my hospital they are. It's a lot of work to keep on top of their labs and your 
really keeping a close eye on this patient for signs of bleeding. So at my hospital, the heparin drip policy, I believe it's that you're checking uh, labs. So you're going to check the PTT, the partial thromboplastin time, every, I want to say it's six hours after you start the infusion and six hours after you make any bolus or change to the infusion. So you need to be on top of sending off those labs, following up on them, changing your heparin drip rate, changing the bolus factor. Sometimes you'll bolus the patient. And you also want to keep, again, a really close eye on the patient for signs of bleeding. So I've had a few patients on heparin drips who were high risk for pulmonary embolism. And maybe because they'd already had one in the past, come in with one, and that's what brought them into the emergency room. But there was this one patient who was on the heparin drip for pulmonary embolism protocol and also very bleedy. Okay, so that's the opposite of being clotty, very bleedy. Had a wound, just an unrelated wound, pressure ulcer type wound that just oozed blood constantly. And it was a little bit alarming, I have to be honest, to see the dressings that fully saturated that often. So, um, you know, you make sure obviously that the MD is aware of how much bleeding is happening. If possible, make sure that they put eyeballs on it. Like I'll bring them into the room and say, you have to see this so that I know that I've conveyed the severity of it accurately. And then the other thing you would want to do is if they're not trending a CBC, hemoglobin, hematocrit, then you would I would suggest trending them at least every 12 hours, um, if not maybe Q6 if it's really severe um, daily. I don't know. To me, that doesn't seem like enough if they're actively bleeding. Many protocols will say if the patient is actively bleeding to stop the heparin infusion and call the MD. And so, of course, I did that. And then they say, keep it going. I know they're bleeding, etc. So just something to look out for when you have a patient who is on a heparin drip. So if your patient is on a heparin drip, a couple things you really need to know is that they are not going to have any spinal punctures or any epidurals. So let's say your patient was on a heparin drip and for some reason the doc wanted to do a lumbar puncture to rule out meningitis. And you would definitely want to make sure that your patient was off the heparin for a specified period of time before that procedure took place. And then if your patient has gotten too much heparin and is bleeding and it doesn't stop, the nice thing about heparin is that it doesn't last too terribly long. So um, one of the things you would do is simply turn it off and monitor. The other thing that you would do if you absolutely had to reverse it right away is give protamine sulfate. So it's always nice to know what your reversals are if a reversal agent is available. So to review, the reversal for Coumadin slash Warfarin was vitamin K and or clotting factors. And for heparin, it is protamine sulfate. Okay, so the next most common one that you will see in the clinical setting is Lovenox, also called Inoxaparin. 
So Lovenox is, is a type of heparin. It's a low molecular weight heparin. It's used a lot for DVT, pulmonary embolism prophylaxis, especially you'll see it a lot in patients after surgery. And a lot of times for patients will use it long term um, at home on their own. They'll learn how to do the injections and all of that. I know a gal who has to inject Lovenox forever because she is so high risk for pulmonary embolism. So You'll see this a lot. Lovenox works on the clotting factors like the others that we've talked about, but we don't adjust the dose based on the PTT like we do for a heparin drip. You'll have um, the dose is often weight-based. So typically you'll see it weight-based and then adjusted if the patient has renal impairment. So if your patient has renal insufficiency, Make sure that the doc knows that so you can get renal dosing for the Lovenox enoxaparin. So Lovenox is given by sub-Q injection. You will adjust the dose for renal impairment. Again, no spinal punctures or epidurals while on Lovenox. You would need to be off of it for I don't know how long. It would probably depend on the uh, provider's preference. Make sure they know the patient has received Lovenox before any of those procedures take place. And then the reversal is, again, protamine sulfate. But Lovenox seems to me to have a longer effect than heparin. I had a patient who was on Lovenox and very bleedy and... The pharmacist and the intensivist talked about putting them on heparin because you could turn off the heparin and the effects don't linger as long as they do for that subcute Lovenox injection that the patient gets a lot of times just once a day, sometimes twice a day. So a little bit of need to know things for Lovenox and heparin. Okay, so those are what I call kind of the old school anticoagulants, and there are a whole bunch of new school anticoagulants. And this is where those fancy commercials come in where the people sit around and talk about how bad Coumadin is because you have to go to the lab. Here's what I have to say about that, and this is just my opinion and probably a very skewed opinion because I only see really sick people. I don't see all the people that are just fine taking these new generation drugs, but what I see in the ICU are sick people who come in with devastating bleeds because they are taking a new generation anticoagulant that does not require any lab monitoring at all. And when I say devastating bleeds, I'm talking about huge hemorrhagic strokes, talking about massive GI bleeds. Those would be the two main things that I've seen. Now, again, my perception is probably very skewed because of the patient population that I see. If you were to talk to a nurse practitioner who sees people in the outpatient setting, they're perception might be completely different and their patients are doing great. So keep that in mind um, that depending on where you work, what you see is definitely going to shape how you feel about certain drugs. But to me, I would like knowing kind of on a weekly or biweekly basis how, quote, thin my blood was if I were taking something like Coumadin versus just blindly taking something like Xarelto and then 
you know, passing out because my hemoglobin is five. Okay, so the new generation anticoagulants, one of the things they talk about are the benefits of a lack of monitoring that is not required. So this will be your Xarelto, Eliquis, Pradaxa, Erixtra. Those are all very common ones. There's probably others by the time uh, you're hearing this. So keep an eye. You'll see these commercials and you'll see how they kind of um, try to sell themselves about the lack of monitoring. But to me, again, not a selling point. So the lack of monitoring goes hand in hand with no need for dietary restrictions with these medications. The upside is that a lot of patients find therapies with these drugs so much easier to adhere to. The other downside, did I mention? There's no antidote, no reversal for these drugs. Okay, did that sink in? There's no reversal for these drugs. So let's say you've got a patient who's been taking Zarelto and I don't know, forgot that they took it and took an extra dose. Maybe they have a little mild dementia and forgetfulness, or maybe they just are on too high of a dose that they don't need and they are bleeding and they are bleeding profusely. So they come into the ED. There's no way to stop that from happening. Let's say maybe they were in a motor vehicle accident and they come in and they have an open fracture or a busted spleen. There's no way to reverse the anticoagulant that they were taking if it is one of these new generation ones. Unless there's a new one come out since since uh, I did the research for this podcast, but for the most part, you basically are just going to have to chase that blood loss with transfusions and hope that you can keep ahead of it. The very last ditch effort thing that you could do is give the patient emergent dialysis. So one of the things that you need to do to get the patient into emergent dialysis is place what's called a trialysis catheter or Clinton catheter, and it's giant. And guess what happens when you poke giant holes into people who are really bleedy? Yeah, they bleed a lot more. So there's that. Okay. So... A lot of GI bleeds with these, brain hemorrhage bleeds with these. So if you've got a patient who comes in, maybe you're working in the ED, you're precepting in the ED, patient that comes in with severe headache, um, sudden onset severe headache, any kind of neurological changes, find out if they are on one of these uh, blood thinners or anticoagulants because that might be helpful information to have. So... Let's see, what else do we have? Most of these are actually all of these new generation anticoagulants are PO meds. So the patient takes them at home, no injections required. They do not have to go to the lab and they don't need to watch their vitamin K. They can have all the spinach salad and green smoothies that they want. Again, you'd want to be very cautious with any spinal punctures or epidurals. The reason for this, I keep mentioning it, I should probably say why it's important, is because the risk for an epidural hematoma is really large, and you would not want one of those because it can cause paralysis. So that's why it's such a big deal. You would definitely want to teach any patient who is going home on any kind of anticoagulant to know what the signs of bleeding are. And what I'm talking about mainly 
is GI bleeding, that occult bleeding that they can't really see because it's happening inside their body. So that would be the black tarry stools, very common, or coffee ground emesis. If they throw up and it looks like coffee grounds, well, then they've got to bleed probably somewhere more in the upper GI tract. If they are having the black tarry stools, that's definitely a sign of a bleed. Um, being more fatigued than usual, having a faster heart rate than usual, things like that. Blood pressure being low, maybe they monitor their blood pressure at home. Someone who would be at higher risk for bleeding would be someone who takes a lot of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like um, ibuprofen. And especially someone who drinks a lot, a lot of alcohol, which also is kind of a bleedy kind of thing. So these patients you definitely want to teach for, teach what the signs of bleeding are. And then if they've had a history of falls where they have kind of had a, a big fall and they're high risk for more falls, the physician may forego anticoagulant therapy on them altogether because the risk of them falling, hitting their head, and getting a bleed up in the brain is too high. So there you go. Those are the main little tidbits that you would like to know about the anticoagulants for your exams coming up in your nursing school rotations. And then we have the platelet aggregation inhibitors. So these are the drugs that keep platelets from sticking together. And when the platelets don't stick together very well, you don't have blood clots as well. So the most common ones that you'll see with this are Plavix, Brillanta, or Brillanta is probably pronounced, Agronox, and Aspirin. So Plavix You'll see this a lot with patients who have had a stroke, a myocardial infarction, any kind of heart stent, acute coronary syndrome, things like that. So basically, if your patient takes too much Plavix, the really only antidote is just to give them some platelets via a blood transfusion. So it is going to be a PO medication that they will take at home on their own. Probably, I think most of them, I think Plavix is once per day dosing, not really an antidote, but you could give platelets and that might help. Agronox is a combo drug of aspirin and something I cannot pronounce, dipyridamol. I am sure I said that really wrong, but just know that it is a combo drug of aspirin and something else, and that something else is going to prevent platelets from clumping together. So we'll use this um, to reduce the risk of stroke in patients who are high risk for stroke. And one of the side effects that people don't like about it is that it causes really bad headaches in some people, um, especially when it is first started. So this is, again, also a PO medication. It's a twice-per-day med, and again, it's a combination of an aspirin and a platelet inhibitor, and there is no antidote for Agronox, so don't take too much of it. And then we have Relinta, and that is also used to reduce the risk of things like myocardial infarction, stroke and patients who are at risk, you know, that's your patient who has atrial fibrillation, maybe a history of an MI or acute coronary syndrome. 
and it is also used to prevent platelets from clumping up onto cardiac stents. So you might have seen some studies that Berlinta is more effective than Plavix, so you might see it a little bit more than Plavix. I tend to see Plavix more. Maybe it's just cheaper. I don't know. But what do you need to know about Berlinta? It is also a PO medication. It's twice per day dosing for the most part. Um, some of these dosings, maybe they're different for some people. I'm just telling you the, the, general, the general guidelines. You might have dyspnea as a side effect in your patient. So you can do that as part of your patient education that they may experience that. And it can cause an exacerbation of bradycardias. So if you're giving it to a patient who is already prone to bradycardias, you might want to keep an eye on them for a bit. And one of the fun facts about Berlenta is that there is no antidote and it does not dialyze out. So really the only antidote is time. So there's that one. And then aspirin, old school, right? So aspirin, it's technically a salicylate, but it is often used as an antiplatelet drug. It works on the Cox pathway. If you can remember back to your anatomy and physiology class, um, the Cox pathway with the platelet enzymes, and it's very complicated, and we're not going to get into that now, but just know that it helps to keep platelets from clumping together. You'll see this for patients who are at risk for clot formation, patients who are at risk for an MI, DVT-PE, you know, they say, uh, I don't even know if this is still one of the guidelines, but if you expect that your loved one is having a heart attack to give them an aspirin to chew, I it probably still is part of the kind of the layperson guidelines for when to call 911 and things you can do to help while you're waiting for therapy to get there. But anyway, so that's aspirin. As you know, it is a PO medication. It's a once per day thing. You want to take aspirin with food because it can be very upsetting to the stomach. A lot of times I'll see aspirin listed on my patient's allergy list and I always go to look and see what the allergy reaction is and it'll say stomach upset and I'm thinking well they just they need to eat something and then they can take their aspirin again no antidote with this one you would just give supportive therapy chasing um, with blood products if you needed to etc okay so we talked about the anticoagulants then we talked about the platelet inhibitors. Now let's talk a little bit about the clot-busting drugs. I mentioned TPA early on, and that is probably the most um, common that you'll see. It's altiplase, also called activase. So this is a tissue plasminogen activator, but you're just going to hear it called TPA. So this is the drug that you give to the patients when they come into the emergency department and they have stroke symptoms and they've gone to CT scan and they are negative on the CT scan. And when we say a CT scan for a stroke patient is negative, what we mean is that it is negative for a bleed. Because obviously you would not give TPA to someone who had a hemorrhagic stroke, only to ischemic stroke. So you have to have that CT scan done. It has to be negative for a bleed, and the patient also has to meet a bunch of other criteria. We won't get into that here because it is a whole other discussion, but just know that a lot of patients 
if they are there within the time frames, are negative for a bleed and do not have other contraindications, will be getting TPA. And it's typically three to four and a half hours of symptom onset that TPA has been shown to be effective. It is also sometimes given in cases of myocardial infarction. And as I mentioned earlier, I mentioned that it could be given right at the site of an arterial clot. So that's where that catheter is placed at the location of the clot. And then that slow infusion of TPA is administered. So you'll see this, like if your patient comes in because their foot is cold, numb, painful, all those things that you see with an arterial clot, they may go down to interventional radiology and get this catheter placed and that TPA will then just infuse slowly into that site as it breaks up the clot. So that in a nutshell is what you need to know about TPA given for stroke, given for myocardial infarction, given for arterial clots, very high risk of bleeding with TPA administration. There are also many contraindications. Like I mentioned, one of those would be a recent history of bleeding. And one of the things that I tell my patients when they have had TPA or are getting a TPA infusion under my care is what they need to let me know about ASAP. And one of those things is if you develop a severe sudden onset headache, let me know right away. If your vision changes, let me know right away. If you have any stroke-like symptoms, and I'll go over what those are, let me know right away. If you see blood in your urine, let me know right away. Like those things you want to know about right away as the nurse taking care of a patient who is getting TPA. If their IV sites are oozing and not stopping, you'd want to know. So TPA is something that you would only have in the intensive care unit. It's given down in the ED for stroke patients when they come in from the field. And then if there was a stroke in the hospital, it would be given in the intensive care unit because those patients do require such careful monitoring. So that is your intro to anticoagulants, aka blood thinners and clot busters and antiplatelet agents. So I hope that helps you do well on your exams and in your clinical rotations. And just a note, there was a weird, really weird glitch with the my podcasting platform. Uh, a few weeks back, I put up an episode that I intended to be about hemodynamic medications. And I somehow the wires got crossed. I swear this time it wasn't me. But it accidentally pushed out an interview I did with a woman named Eve. So if you were intending to listen to hemodynamic medications and you hear me talking to this woman about being an advocate and you're like, what does this have to do with hemodynamic medications? Never fear. All you have to do is delete that hemodynamic medications podcast off of your device if that is how you're listening to the podcast and then re-download it. I have since fixed it as far as I know on my end. When you um, re-download that podcast episode, it should grab the correct one and then you can hear about hemodynamic medications. So I hope that this was helpful for you and that you are enjoying your semester so far if you're in school. And again, 
Thanks for the nice notes, guys. Please keep them coming. I love them. They do make my day. Have a wonderful day. Take care, everyone. And as always, be safe out there. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.